Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here in this house on this Sunday morning. And all those of you who are worshiping with us online from your house, we're grateful that you have tuned in to us this morning. And I would ask all of you, got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, take them and turn with me the Old Testament to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah into chapter 9. And as um, you make your way there to that passage, let me just provide a little public service announcement for you, uh, particularly as, uh, as you, we move closer to Christmas and the Christmas Day. There are probably going to be a lot of you unwrapping gifts that are given to you at various points. So uh, as you do that, just make sure when you unwrap your gifts that you don't throw out your gift with the wrappings. Because evidently that happens quite often. Um, I was reading something about that recently, and, and I read where, uh, where someone lost a ring that they had been given. Someone else threw out, uh, accidentally threw out their, a, a brand new cell phone that they had been given. Uh, gift cards, gift cards go away almost immediately sometimes, but large sums of money sometimes gets thrown out with all of the wrapping paper that gets gets unwrapped, and, and I don't know what it looks like at your house. It looks like a bomb exploded at ours sometimes when all the gifts are unwrapped and it's there on the floor. So just be careful about that because evidently it happens quite often. In fact, I read um, that a few years ago, a man found some bags of garbage that were to be thrown away, and inside those bags of garbage were some highly valuable ancient Mayan artifacts that dated back to 300 B.C. They were just, they were in the bag with, with trash to be thrown away. I read about another man who was in Kentucky and that he, um, he found himself there where he worked at, at a, uh, a recycling center. And inside a, a barrel of scrap metal, the man found $22,000 worth of U.S. savings bonds. They'd been thrown away. I also read about a lady in Manhattan she stumbled across a painting that was kind of shoved between a couple of, of bags of trash that were sitting outside a dumpster. The dumpster was full. The bags were outside. Here was this painting shoved between the bags. She kind of saw a picture of it as she went by or looked at it, and, and the colors of the painting appealed to her. So she pulled it out, looked at it, decided that she wanted to keep it. She took it home. She wound up finding out later that it was a lost masterpiece that was worth over $1 million dollars. Stuff like that amazes me. I love to read stories about that. I have a friend whose hobby is just that. He's a treasure hunter. He loves to go to, to yard sales. He loves to go to estate sales. And he loves to look for treasures, things that, that people either want to sell cheap or they want to get rid of. For a lot of them, they think it's junk. They think it's, it's just trash that, that needs to be thrown away. But he has the ability to go and to see this stuff, and he sees it and, and, and sees the value in it. I look at the stuff that he looks at, and I think, man, that's just a bunch of junk. I wouldn't take that home for anything. He sees it with a different set of eyes, and he is able to see the value of that junk amid all the rubbish that surrounds it. And I think that's awesome. I wish that I had that kind of an ability. I don't. But I think, it's, I think it's an awesome trait to have. And, it, and I really think all of that, though, sets up for us the, the scenario that we find presented to us here in Isaiah chapter 9. 
the context of this passage is something along the lines of a garbage dump. Were we to go back and we were to read the, the first few chapters of Isaiah, that would become obvious to us. The prophet Isaiah reveals to us that a crisis is going on in the land of Israel. A crisis created by the rebellion of the Jewish people against God. These people have followed after idols. Their kings had chosen to disobey God, specifically the king of Judah, had chosen to disobey God's command and had made an alliance with the pagan nation of Assyria. And as a result, Isaiah prophesied that God's judgment was going to come against the nation of Judah. And it is Isaiah's prediction of Judah's defeat that serves as the ugly backdrop of what we read here in chapter 9. In fact, the last verse of, of chapter 8 declare to, uh, declares to us that this once great nation would become a wilderness, that gloom and darkness would spread across the land. But it's right here in the middle of that predicted chaos, in the middle of that, that foretold calamity, that Isaiah gives us a message of hope. And it's like a diamond that kind of shines in the middle of a muddy road. It's like a treasure that's inconspicuously in the middle of a heap of garbage. So are Isaiah's prophetic words for us. Words that are so familiar and so appropriate for us to remind ourselves of their truth at Christmas time. So let's, let's read them together. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and, and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word that you give to us. We thank you that we have this opportunity to come to this place today to read it and to study it for ourselves. We're grateful that the Ivy Creek Church family can assemble itself in this place today. And even as I pray that, I'm reminded of other brothers and sisters 
friends of ours, people that I know, others that I know others know who are in Kentucky that, and other places that experienced such devastating tornadoes yesterday. And there are many brothers and sisters that they have no place formally as far as a structure to meet. But yet your church continues to go. They are your church, and so I pray for them. I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that you would bring peace to them in the midst of the chaos and the rubble, the wasteland that they find themselves in right now because of the devastation of those storms. I just pray for them. I ask that peace would rest upon them. I pray, God, that you would, uh, you would send help to them, and that, Lord, that you would continue to remind them that they have the only source of hope that they will ever need is in you. So I ask that, and I pray that for ourselves as well, that you would remind us of that same truth this morning. Father, in our weakness, show us your strength. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I mentioned to you the muddy road. Uh, I mentioned to you the garbage dump that Israel had gotten herself into. If you want to see really a clear an unvarnished picture of what God's judgment looks like, just look back up at verse 22 of chapter 8. Notice what Isaiah says. He says, Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Listen, it doesn't matter how you slice it. There's nothing good about that prediction. It's dark. It is foreboding, to say the least. Yet there is a definitive change in the prophecy that occurs in chapter 9. In fact, I have two main points for you today. And those two points really summarize the two main sections of the seven verses that I read for you. The first five verses uh, come for us this way and it tells us this. And it's the first point that I want you to see. It tells us that a change is coming. A change is coming. You see, amid the gloom of Israel's judgment described there in verse 8... There's the opening conjunction of verse 9. In the New King James, it's the word nevertheless. That's how it's translated. In the ESV, it's translated as just simply but. But it's a conjunction that tells us, it's a hinge word that tells us everything that follows is going to be different from that which came before it. And what, what we see is that the, the situation and the circumstance of chapter 8 that is going to be transformed based upon what he tells us will occur in chapter 9. He says a change is coming. Now notice the ways in which Isaiah declares this change is going to be realized. I've given them to you as just subpoints there under your first main point. We're going to move through them quickly, but I just want you to notice what, what Isaiah talks about there. The first one comes in verse 1. Though things looked undoubtedly dismal, God promised that things would change and they would go from gloom to glory. They would go from gloom to glory. The ESV translates verse 1 this way, and I think it, it, does, it makes it just abundantly clear what Isaiah wants to communicate. It says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Here, Isaiah's prophecy concerns not just Judah, but reaches beyond its borders to the, to the nation of Israel. And as it reaches there, 
to the nation of Israel. It tells them up in the land of the Galilee that there will come a great reversal for them. There will be glory in the place of gloom. But that's not all. Notice the next subpoint on your outline. As we move to verse 2, there's another change that the prophet predicts is going to come. And he says that it's going to be changed from darkness to light. Notice verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Once again, here we're presented with a real and significant change in circumstances. Chapter 8 spoke of a darkness that engulfed the entire land. But here the prophet says that this darkness will be replaced by light, that, that, that the sun is going to rise, and that the dark shadows will flee, and that night will be dispelled. Isaiah looks forward to that day. He looks forward to a day when the light will shine in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. But as the commercials say, wait, there's more. Uh, Notice the next reality that Isaiah tells us will come. There will also be another change. It will change from sorrow to joy. If you look at the the descriptive words that are used there in verse 22 of chapter 8, Notice notice what Isaiah talks about. He talks about trouble and darkness and gloom of anguish. Listen, sorrow is the only way to describe that kind of understanding. It's the only feeling that can be produced by those words. In their rebellion against God, the Jews had brought great sorrow upon themselves. But in verse 3, we find a promise of joy. In fact, we find the word joy, the noun mentioned twice, and we find the verb to rejoice mentioned twice. Look at it again. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice because of you. According to the joy of the harvest, men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Listen, Isaiah is pointing to a day of celebration, not sadness. He is pointing to a day of, 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 of great joy, not sorrow. And then in verses 4 and 5, we find yet another hopeful prophecy. Isaiah says there will be a change from defeat to victory. From defeat to victory. In verse 4, Isaiah makes a reference to Gideon's great victory over Midian. That's described for us in Judges chapter 7. And then he points to the fact that there's going to come an even greater victory. He prophesies that the yoke of the burden that had been placed upon his countrymen would be broken, as well as all the devices that had been used to oppress them, the staffs, the rods that had been used to beat them, all of those things would be broken. And furthermore, he says all of the garments worn by their enemies, from their sandals all the way to their military garb that was stained with Jewish blood, all of that would be stripped from them and burned as fuel in a fire. And what that imagery conveys is that there would come a complete victory over their enemies. The battle would be over. There would be no more oppression. There would be no more domination. There would be no more defeat. Now, that's just a quick flyover over verses 1 through 5. I would encourage you to go back and study all those verses more in depth. But what I want you to note is that to say the least, based upon the reality that we come to understand in, verse, in chapter 8, 
Isaiah prophesies in the first five verses of chapter 9 that a major and wonderful change was coming. And what he describes is nothing less than a reversal of fortune for those who found themselves in the wasteland of God's judgment. Let me just pause right here for just a second because I would imagine that there are more than a few of us in this room who are kind of thinking to ourselves, you know, that's, that sounds really good. In fact, I'd like to get in on a little bit of that that he talks about in verses 1 through 5 because I kind of understand when you look around and you see wasteland. A lot of us are probably thinking along those lines. You look at our world today. You look at our country. You look at our nation and our society. A lot of us, from when we are evaluating it, don't see anything but a garbage dump. We see a wasteland. We, We wonder, is there any hope? But then I would also imagine that there are some of us in this room, though, who in our own personal lives, when we examine our own personal existence and the situation, the circumstances in which we find ourselves, we can far better identify with the gloom and the darkness and the sorrow and the defeat described up in chapter 8 than we can the light and the joy and the victory and the glory that's described here in chapter 9. Some of you may... Evaluate your own life as being like a garbage dump and a wasteland. And the fact of the matter is, if you're honest, a lot of that's been brought on yourself because of your own sin and the poor choices that you've made, things that you have engaged in that you know are, are, are not pleasing to the Lord. And, and you find yourself in the midst of some scenarios that you think, I don't know how I can get out. Everywhere I turn, it feels like it's a cul-de-sac. It feels like a dead-end road. And the heaviness, the heaviness of God's judgment weighs upon me. And you wonder, is there a possibility of hope? Is there a possibility of a change, a reversal that can come into your life, that can change your circumstances? Well, hang on to that thought because I want us to consider what the prophet Isaiah says will bring about this hope-filled, fortune-reversing change that he's just described in those first five verses. Because you see, in that first section, he's told us that a change is coming But then in verses 6 and 7, he goes on to tell us what will usher in that change, or really who will usher in that change. Notice the second major point on your outline this morning. We've already seen that a change is coming, but then we recognize that a child is born. A child is born. Now, for those of you who've been waiting for the Christmas emphasis, here you go, right here. You see, Isaiah 9 is one of those passages that we always read at Christmas time. And we have to recognize it in its context, what it's telling us. Isaiah chapter 9 is a prophetic passage that was written around 700 years before the birth of Christ. But it is nevertheless a passage that is all about him. It is a passage that points to the birth of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. And consequently, what we recognize is that the hope And the promise that the Jews of Isaiah's day had in the coming of this Christ child is the same hope and the same promise that you and I have today. Isaiah pins the hope of everything he had described in the first part of this chapter on the coming of Jesus. And listen, all of my hope and all of your hope is pinned upon him as well. I love what Billy Graham has said about Jesus He says, Jesus is the hinge on which the door of history swings. 
You know what that means? That means everybody who has ever been born from the Old Testament, from Adam and Eve, all the way through to right here today, all of us in this room, all of us, our hope is solely and only on Jesus. I want you to notice this detail, though, though, from this prophecy that was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, notice how Isaiah presents it. He says, a child is born. A son is given. He tells it as if it had already occurred. Not just that, but if we look back at those first five verses, we'll recognize that he states things there as if they had already occurred. Listen, the the great things that this Christ child was going to bring, notice verse 2, the people in darkness have what? Have seen a great light. Upon them, what? A light has shined, past tense. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and increased, past tense, its joy. Verse 4, you have broken the joy of his burden. Isaiah is talking about a future reality. He's talking about something that was going to happen. But he does it by using the past tense verb. And that's what a lot of folks go back and they talk about being the prophetic idiom. In other words, it's a way of speaking whose purpose is to show the certainty of the promise that is revealed. One pastor put it this way, the prophet wrote this way in order to assure the children of Israel that though their circumstances now are grim and though their hope may be dim within their hearts, the fulfillment of God's promise of rescue to them is certain. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that we have the same certainty today. All our hopes, all our hopes are pinned upon Jesus who has come. So in light of that, what makes the birth of Christ, this Christ child, so significant? significant? What, What is it that will allow him to bring about these changes that Isaiah says will come? Well, I believe it. it, we can understand it based upon some things that Isaiah tells us about him. And those are the sub points that I want to give you. And the first one that I want you to know is that he tells us this Christ child is going to be a sovereign ruler. A sovereign ruler. Isaiah tells us in verse 6 that the government will be upon his shoulder. In other words, he will be God's universal king. Now, that would have been great news for these Jews. I just want you to know. Because in contrast to the wicked kings who had led them into so much pain and into so much trouble, this future king that Isaiah prophesies will come is going to govern with the best interest of his people in the, at heart, and, and their well-being will be put first. So that's great news for them. But then notice also, according to verse 7, he says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That too is fantastic news because it declares that all the wonderful changes and all the wonderful things that, and the blessed new reality that this Christ child would usher in, it would not be temporary. It's not something that's here today and gone tomorrow. In other words, he tells us, as one one writer puts it, that the reign of Jesus is not simply indestructible. It is unstoppable and it is triumphant. He will preside on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it 
with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And nothing can thwart the rule of King Jesus. He will build his church. He will fulfill his purposes. He will establish his kingdom until at the last, at the end of the age, the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth just as the waters cover the sea. That's the first thing that we note about this child who will be born. But also note that this Christ child, this universal and eternal king will have multiple names. Isaiah mentions four of them. The first one Isaiah identifies is this. It's there on your outline. It's Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now, many people sometimes will separate these two into two different names, one being Wonderful and the second being Counselor. But I'm of the mind that that this is actually one name. It's one title. The word Wonderful is a descriptive word. It's an adjective. It's, It's a word that is often used in the Old Testament to describe the acts of God that we as mere humans just can't understand. It's the way God just intersects with humanity and just blows us away. We don't have real good words for that, so the word that the Hebrews used was this word translated wonderful. But then it attaches that word wonderful to the, the noun counselor. And a counselor is an advisor. And a counselor is, is someone, we might even call him an ideal ruler. So when you attach the wonderful, the adjective to the counselor, the noun, and you take them together, we recognize that in this prophecy, Isaiah is telling us that this Christ child to be born is, would be known as a perfect teacher. And he's the ultimate counselor. And as the wonderful counselor, you and I can know that that the Lord gives good, righteous, life-giving direction to his people. As verse 2 makes clear, he was born to bring light into the darkness. And therefore, those who will follow him will not walk in darkness, but will instead walk in the blazing light of the day. The next name that's given for Isaiah, that Isaiah gives to the Christ child there is the one that you see there is Mighty God. In Hebrew, the word, the, the, the title is El Gabor, and it, it, it means strong one. It means powerful warrior. Consequently, th- this name is often used in the context of military power. In other words, the Christ child will be the one who fights for his people. And he is the one who is all powerful, and he is able to accomplish that which is good for his people. So if we think about it this way, as the wonderful counselor, Jesus is the one who makes the plans. And as mighty God, he is the one who carries those plans out. If we consider that for just a moment, that carries some pretty serious implications for us. Because you see, if Christ's wonderful plans will be carried out with all of his infinite might, then you and I cannot remain neutral with respect to him. As one has put it, if Jesus is not God, then we are fools to worship him. But if he is, we are fools not to. Why? Because if he is truly mighty God, then he is the omnipotent one. He is the all-powerful one. He is the one who we cannot overcome. And he is the one who fights for his people. And therefore, we must recognize that we rely on him. We need his help. Satan and sin would seek to destroy you every single day of your life. 
But Jesus is mighty God. He is the omnipotent one. And he has defeated Satan. And he has overcome sin through his death and through his resurrection. So he's wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. Then notice the third name that Isaiah gives us. This about this Christ child. He is the everlasting father. Now that may initially be a little bit confusing. Because isn't Jesus Christ the son of God and, and not the father? Yes, that is, that is true. So, so then is Isaiah saying that the coming Messiah would be God the father? No, that's not what he's saying. In fact, in the Old Testament, that, that title, Father, was, was one that was often used in reference to a king. It was in reference to one who was considered to be a, a spiritual or even a political leader and father of the people. So, so in one respect, when Isaiah uses this name or this title for the coming Messiah, he does so in order to highlight the fact that he will be an eternal ruler over his people. However, the title Everlasting Father does provide a description of how Jesus treats those who belong to him. In other words, all that a good father is, Jesus is to his people. He cares for them. He loves them. He he provides for them. He watches over them. And this this is where that adjective everlasting is so important to us. You see, as a father myself, and I know that all the rest of you fathers out there, and even your mother, even all you mothers would feel the same way. My goal for my children is to love them and to provide for them and to care for them and to watch over them. But I know exactly what all of you know. In fact, I learned it firsthand this year. And that is, as a father, I will not live forever. None of us will. All of us have a shelf life. Sooner or later, all of us will take our final breath. But we will never have to worry about that with Christ. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Father of eternity. And this title speaks to the eternal nature of Jesus You see, though Jesus was born into this world on a specific day at a specific time, what the scriptures reveal is that he was before time. He is above time. He is beyond time. And as we studied last week, he is the one who spoke and light came into existence. When he spoke, the world, the moon, the stars all came to be. He is not bound by time or space He is a ruler who acts like a father toward his people. And he tenderly loves us and cares for us and watches over us. And he will do it for all eternity. But then notice the fourth name, the fifth point, sub point there. The fourth name and final name that Isaiah records for us is this. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. This title literally means the prince whose coming brings peace peace. In other words, this really speaks of the effect of his coming. In fact, we might even say that this is the climax. This is the the culmination of all of the others. Literally, prince means an official commander, the person of note, the, 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 the head of something. And the word peace is the word shalom, and it carries with it 
the connotation of deliverance and salvation. This is who Jesus is. He is the official commander. He is the one who is in charge, who comes to bring deliverance and salvation. He is the one who has come to bring peace. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul describes about Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2. He tells us that Jesus himself is our peace, that he is the one who has come to bring those who were far off near to God. Those who were separated from him by sin have been brought near by his own blood. And he has come to, to take down the wall of separation. And he's come to bring us to God and to reconcile us. And he has done it by his very own death. And thus Paul says he himself is our peace. So those are the descriptions and those are the names that Isaiah gives to this Christ child and they describe who he is and why he came and what he came to do. And therefore, what we recognize is that right there in the middle of this landfill, in the middle of this garbage dump, this backdrop that Israel found herself in as a result of her sin and her rebellion, Isaiah draws attention to the one who would come to reverse those circumstances. One who would shine a light into their darkness. One who would promise hope and help that was so certain and so sure that when he wrote about it, he wrote as if it had already happened. And that is what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which, enjoy it, it's short and I hope memorable. At Christmas... We celebrate the birth of the child who changes everything. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a child who changes everything. And his birth is the greatest gift that you and I could ever receive. See, it was for us. Don't miss that. For unto us, a child is born. For unto us. A son is given. Do you realize that he was given for our benefit? That what God gave, he gave for our salvation and our deliverance. He came to change our circumstances. Yes, these words were written 700 years before Christ came. And they were written to a bunch of ancient Israelites. But the hope and the joy and the peace that they offer are still just as relevant today to you and to me as, it, as they were to them. In fact, that is the reason why we share gifts with each other at Christmas time. Did you realize that? The reason why we give gifts to one another is because in the act of giving gifts, we are reminded of the gift that God has given to us. Not a gift wrapped in bright paper with pretty bows and ribbons. No, no. As the scriptures say, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in the manger. And when he grew up, he was adorned not with bows and ribbons, but he was adorned with a, a crown of thorns upon his head. And he was crucified on a wooden cross. And he was ultimately wrapped in a burial shroud and placed in a tomb, all so that you and I might be brought, who were once far away, brought near to God and reconciled through Christ's blood. That is the gift that God has given us that we celebrate at Christmas. It is the gift of his son. Unfortunately, there will be many, though, at Christmas who will not respect, they will not appreciate the offer of deliverance and salvation given through Christ. There will be many who will ignore the gift 
and they will ignore the one who gives it. It's been happening ever since the gift was first given. Sadly, Jesus is often treated like those treasures that were found thrown away in the trash. Many either do not know the value of Jesus or they simply decide that he is of no value to them. And I want you to know, for those for whom that choice is what they make, no change will come in their life. In fact, for them, the gloom and the darkness and the sorrow and defeat will be all that awaits them for eternity. But this morning, I have come to announce to you the immeasurable and incalculable and priceless gift of this child. Based upon what the scriptures reveal to us, Jesus Christ is the greatest Christmas gift ever given. And I've not only come to announce the immense value of this gift to you, but to tell you just as Isaiah told those ancient Israelites, that the gift of God's Son is what will reverse the circumstances of your life. You may find yourself at the end of a dead-end road and the heaviness of your circumstances weigh upon you and you wonder, is there truly any hope? I want you to know that because Christ has come, He will replace your gloom with glory. He will replace your darkness with light. He will replace your sorrow with joy. And because He has defeated our ultimate enemies of devil, of sin and death, He offers you victory that will last for eternity. And He will love and He will protect you and He will care for you and He will watch over you as a father does. And He will provide you what you need most of all. He will redeem you from your sins and He will reconcile you to God the Father by bringing you peace. And He has done everything that is necessary for all of that to happen through His virgin birth and His perfect life and His sacrificial death and His miraculous resurrection. I have come to announce to you today that there is no greater gift than the Lord Jesus Christ. No gift you received this Christmas, not the greatest gift you've ever had, will compare to what Jesus Christ offers you today. And because of that, then let me say this unequivocally and without apology. You ought to want him more than anything else. Listen, for a gift to be of any value, it has to be received. As we read last Sunday, the scriptures declare in John 1 verse 12 concerning Jesus that as many as received to them, He gave the right to be called the children of God to those who believe in his name. Have you received him? Have you believed upon him and confessed him as Lord of your life? Jesus is the greatest Christmas gift ever given who will usher in the greatest and the most glorious change in your life, change that will impact you for eternity. My prayer is that you will not ignore him, You will not toss him aside and that you will not fail to recognize the immense value of his gift. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gift of Christ who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, who offers us that which we need most that we could never attain to were it not for him. Thank you that He was prophesied about here seven centuries before his birth. That the gospel message continues to tell us that he provides light for our darkness, glory for our gloom. 
Joy in place of our sorrow. Victory in place of defeat. Thank you that we know that you are our universal, supernatural ruler. You are our our one who has come to do for us the things that are so necessary. My prayer is that there's one in this room that has never come to understand that and never trusted in you and placed their faith in you, that today would be the day that your Holy Spirit would impress upon them. And, and Father, that, that they would truly receive the gift Christ has come to offer. For the rest of us in this room, that that is our testimony, that I pray that we would not become so sidetracked with other things that we put Jesus and put that which he offers us as second place or third place or even further down the list in our pursuit of those other things that we believe to be so important. Help us to recognize the value of Christ and that we would give our lives completely and totally to him in his service. So Father, work in us. Have your will, have your way in our lives and in this time that we have left this morning in Christ's name. Amen.